0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We're really fortunate to have him on our board. You've been on our board two years now, David, or just a little over one. And um, he um, has an advanced degree in uh, business from Vanderbilt University, and also he has his MDiv from Talbot here in Southern California. And he spent over 20 years uh, with Campus Crusade as a missionary over in Russia and, and uh, Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan, yeah. And um, so who better to talk about a missionary trip that the Apostle Paul took other than David Williams. So Sunridge, he spoke during, the, during COVID and outside and online, but you've never seen him live in here. So would you give David a warm welcome from Sunridge? Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy.
1: Well, it's great to be here, and um, it truly is an honor to serve um, this church and uh, the people here, and so I feel very humbled and honored to be a part of what God is doing in Sunridge. And as Britt had mentioned, uh, the last time I spoke, uh, the first time I spoke, we were outside, and I think, if I remember correctly, that's the only time I've ever worn a winter coat to preach in, Um, so that was kind of funny. but. So we've been in Temecula for about six years, and um, I own a business, and I was talking to just someone in the course of work this week. School has started, football started. I don't know if you were able to watch any games yesterday, but my alma mater beat Hawaii. It was really nice. Um, But I was talking to this lady, and she's like, oh, can I call you back? I'm in Yellowstone. I'm thinking, Yellowstone, how are you on vacation now? It just seems like people are Back in the swing of things, and so I was a bit surprised to hear that she was in Yellowstone, and I've never been there. Uh, incredibly beautiful place. Who's been to Yellowstone? Oh man, we've got to get, we've got to go camping to Yellowstone. Well, I wanted Yellowstone's an interesting place. So it became a park in the 1870s. And it had obviously been around for a long time, been used by the native population for centuries, but the U.S. Park Service or the government, however it works, made it a park. And it was a park, like I said, 1872 or so, but for some reason, the U.S. government decided to take away or exterminate, get rid of the wolf population. And what happened was... A very interesting cascading event that took place when they took out the wolves. And you can put up the slide if you want. So what happened? They take out the wolves. The wolf is the apex predator. Vicious, beautiful creature. And I was watching some video earlier this week. Humongous. They're gigantic animals. And so, as you can imagine, if you take out the apex predator in an environment... Things are going to happen. So what happened is the wolves, the apex predator, taken away. The elk population skyrockets. Hey, you know, we, we don't have anyone hunting us down. Let's have more babies. Grandma and grandpa are living. Let's go, you know, feed down by the river. There's no threat. And so what happened, they started to tremendously overgraze the aspen and the willow all the saplings that were up around the riverbanks and the streams and so forth. That alone had this incredible effect because what took place is that then the beavers no longer had raw material to build their dams. So apex predators gone, elf population skyrockets, beavers don't have a place to really build their homes. And as a result of the wolves not being there and the elk, not getting killed, the eagles, bears, ravens, the large scavenger birds. It's like, well, we don't have any food. Let's get out of here. Let's just leave. So that happened. And then the the coyote became the apex predator. And what happened, they started killing all the antelope. So then the antelope were going away and they started killing the rodents, the small animals. So then the small birds of prey, they didn't have anything to eat. So Going back to what happened with the beavers, they just kind of got up and left. All their marshes, all their ponds disappeared. And so what happened as a result of that, you have all this free running water that's not stopped. There's no stopgap for rain. There's no stopgap for floods. There's no stopgap for just the streams and rivers that naturally flow. It caused this insane amount of erosion. 1970, no, 1995, they reintroduce the wolf, and everything gets reversed. The elk are like, hey, we can't go just lollygag around the streams anymore and need our willow and uh, aspen saplings, and those start to grow. That stops erosion. Beavers come in. They build their dams. That stops the stroke of a lot of the, the streams and rivers, and it completely changed the way Yellowstone looked just by reintroducing the wolf. The wolves literally changed the rivers. An incredible story, and what that is called is a trophic cascade. When you introduce one thing into the environment, and all these other things happen as a result. Introduce the wolf, not knowingly, you end up changing rivers. And I think, like, why am I telling you about wolves? (laughs) Um, I think when we look at what Paul was intending, what Paul wanted to do, he had one goal in mind when he set out on his second missionary journey, and then all these other things took place that he did not intend, he did not expect, he did not know what happened. He had one goal in mind, and something else occurred. Some great things occurred as a result. So, bring up this next slide if you don't mind. Where did he go, or what was he setting out to do? He set out to visit the brothers and strengthen the churches. We think of missionary journeys, okay, let's go share the gospel and so forth, which he did, but his desire, the missionary journey, the second missionary journey, was not to share the gospel per se. It was to visit the brothers and strengthen the churches. So, where did he go? What did he do? Let's take a look. So, Britt had showed you a couple or so weeks ago uh, the slide on the first missionary journey. This is where he went On this missionary journey, and if you take a look, I put the modern-day equivalents up there so you can can kind of get a bearing. So he's setting out from Israel. He's looping around southern Turkey. He's going into Greece, all great vacation spots. If you've ever been to any of those places, and then he kind of you know circles back to Israel. So that's what he's doing. He's doing this northern Mediterranean tour. I don't think he was going to you know see the sights. He obviously had a purpose, but. Beautiful area, nonetheless. So that's where, he's, that's where he went. That's the second missionary journey, and that's what he was doing. So um, I want, the way I want to approach this, we're looking at three chapters today, and that's a lot of information. And some of you are thinking, three chapters, ugh, you know, that's too much to do. And so I here's the approach that I want to take. How many of you, um, and I'll explain it this way, how many of you know or use Life 360? Okay, some, of you, some of you have it for your children, know where they are. How many of you have it for your married children? Some people, and how many of you that have Life360 to keep up on your kids would not have wanted your parents to have it when you were your kid's age? I, uh, I thought that was probably the case. So here's what I'm going to do. Take a look at this, uh, this image. I was, look, I was trying to figure out where one of my daughters was, and you go on Life 360. It shows basically where their phone is, and you zo- and you just click on it. It's like, wait, I don't even know where that is. Mountain Lilac, Hollyoak Drive. That's too granular. And so when you zoom back out, you can look at the next one. It's like, oh, I know exactly where that is. She's right. She's not. It's just like a mile from my house. So I told them I wouldn't keep their photos up long. So please take that off. But basically. But basically, what I'm doing and wanting you to understand and see is that we've got three chapters today. If we get so granular, you're going to get caught in the weeds, and so I'm wanting to kind of step back, let you see an overview, and I'm about to show you a PowerPoint fell. I will admit it. This is not the way PowerPoint works, but I wanted you to take a look at it because it's a lot of information that I've kind of crystallized down. So bring up this next slide and just take a look at it. It's more bullet points. It gives you the map. The little stars are where uh, Paul actually landed. If you can see it, we've got new screens, so hopefully it's clear. Take a look. Take 20 seconds. I don't want you to take a long time. Tell your neighbor themes you see, something that comes up like, oh, that's interesting. Just take 20 seconds and do that for me, if you don't mind. Okay, so you probably got somewhat of a bearing. So forgive me for that. I'm not going to focus on that. I know it's not a good PowerPoint. Here's what I'm wanting us to do. I'm wanting us to kind of just step back. We don't need to get all granular and where's mountain lilac way. Look at it this way. So take a, take a look at this image. This is essentially what's going on. Paul, his whole goal, I'm going to set out and I'm going to visit the brothers and I'm going to strengthen the churches. How did he end? It's actually in there in the last part of the section we're looking at. He strengthened the disciples. That's how he set out. That's how he ended. But in between, there was this entire trophic cascade that took place that he didn't intend, that he did not know about when he set out. And so now take a look at it. This, I hope... Will kind of clear the fog in your mind. If you're a visual learner like me, I've even categorized it by color and, and shape a little bit. So, same graphics, same info, but hopefully it's a lot more digestible, and you see v- certain elements coming out, which you probably saw and maybe talked about with your neighbor a minute or two ago. So, he's going out to visit the brothers and strengthen the churches. That's how he ended. That's what he accomplished but along the way, you see all this other stuff taking place. You see, well, there's a couple times he had visions. You see the church grew in numbers. You see he went to jail, but then he also saw people come to know the Lord. He saw this young girl have a demon cast out of her. He had this great sermon, which you could spend a whole series on in in a message, uh, the Arapacas, and was able to just share about who Christ was. That's in visual form, what took place. And you may be thinking, okay, yeah, I could see that happening today. That's, yeah, that's doable in Temecula. Visions, demons cast out. Synagogues, I don't even know where the closest synagogue is. Like, how does this even relate to me today in Temecula? And you may be thinking, you know, who has visions anymore in modern-day America? Well, my dad actually had visions he grew up on the farm started a business total normal guy and he would tell me growing up i never have dreams i don't remember my dreams but i did have dreams specifically that i have not forgotten one of them had to do with he would this was back in probably 67 1967 and he just had a dream his boss i think he was maybe working at wonder bread at the time. His boss or his supervisor's in the filing room talking about how things are at business, and I guess there was something going on. Instantly, he already woke up. He's like, something's not right at the business, and it led him to change jobs, and sure enough, things changed in that business. He also had a dream um, before, I have a twin brother, before I and my my twin brother were born, of two little boys in yellow pajamas, and then we came along. Um, It's true, it's true, and the whole idea of vision's and dreams, it doesn't get a lot of, I guess, report, fanfare, coverage in America. If you move outside of the U.S., it's rampant. And I spent over 10 years uh, serving in Muslim countries, and if you were to ask, and this is from personal experience, this isn't like something I read or heard about or whatever, if this entire room was full of and which is Muslim background, Muslim background believers, how many of you had a vision or a dream of Jesus or an angel appearing to, uh, to you before you became a believer? Easily 40 to 80% of them would raise their hands. That's not an exaggeration. That's real legit stuff. And I mean, even down to specific stuff like Oh, you know, there's an Egyptian or Muslim in Egypt, taxi driver. I had a vision that I was supposed to pick up a man in a red sport coat today because he would tell me about Jesus. Those are like real stuff that happens all over the world every single day. It's not first century Paul type of stuff. It's real and it happens every day. So opposition, he ran into it all the time. Sometimes opposition opposition comes just because you're in a situation or an environment or a country that that is opposed to the gospel. Sometimes it comes directly as a result of sharing the gospel. And I've been in so many situations interrogated by the government. People try to kick in my doors. Had a guy pull a hatchet on me. Um, We've had death threats uh, from our teammates. Stuff all the time regular. And going back to Paul, Paul went through, and you can look at it in the New Testament, all the things that he went through, jailing, and we saw it here, being beaten, jailed, shipwrecked, hungry, in danger from his own countrymen, in danger from rivers. And you have to think, as you're looking, and he probably thought, Is it worth it? You know, as they're pounding him one more time with a stick or a whip, it's like, dang, what am I doing this for? (laughs) Is this worth it? Why am I doing this? Now, I don't know if you are interested in space. I'm transitioning a little bit. But I'm reading a book. I love space stuff. I, I'm reading a book um, uh, about Copernicus and how he kind of went through all this mathematical stuff and from the 1500s, and he's talking about, hey, you know what? The earth is not at the center of the world, you know, or the center of the universe. The sun has something to do with all this. But my first real memory of space stuff comes from, I'm thinking it's either the Apollo 12 uh, or the Apollo 13 uh, missions to the moon. So Apollo 12 was, uh, I think it was November 69. Uh, Apollo 13 was like May, April, March, or April, or somewhere of 72. I'm uh, thinking it's one of those. But my memory is, my twin brother and me sitting in our high chairs eating waffles, watching it on you know those huge TVs you used to have in the 70s. My mom had five kids under six years of age, so two sets of twins. I have twin sisters. We had got another sister, and then my brother and I. So she's probably like, you know, we're like monkeys running around. Just sit and watch TV. Eat your waffle. And so to, to this day, I love waffles. Um, but that's back, and that's back in the day before you had home delivery, Uber Eats, Amazon. But you could get, there are three things you could get home delivery for. Milk, yes. Milk was one of them. Well, hold on. You're getting too many now. I only had three. All right, milk was one of them. Diapers, cloth diapers. We were all in cloth diapers. And Charles's chips. It was a why I don't know why they had a five gallon drum of greasy chips, but maybe it was co opted with the diapers thing. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, you get a Charles chips. Who who got Charles chips? Okay, thank you. I remember the Charles Chip guy. All right, so anyway, we're getting off topic. Um, All right, take a look at this slide. What is that? It's the Milky Way. And you may be thinking, okay, is that like a filter? Is it one of those things where you kind of superimpose, you know, stars uh, over just an image? No, this is Vance National Park. It's a real image. It's the Milky Way. Now, how, do you, how, how can we see the Milky Way if we're in the Milky Way? How does that even work? Well, in actuality, we are in the Milky Way, but it's more, you got to take a look at it more like this. So that's what our Milky Way is. We're the earth, the sun, our solar system. By the way, that, that X is not to scale. It's not like the sun. We're kind of in the countryside. We're like in the suburbs of the Milky Way. And so when you're looking at the night sky, you can't really do it, in Temecula or New York or, you know, places where there's a lot of light pollution. You got to get out in the countryside. You got to get out in the desert or the mountains. But you're looking at all of that other stuff basically from a distance. And so to give you a bit of scale for this, take a look at this. So it takes, we think the sun is super far away, which it is. It's crazy far away. It only takes like eight minutes for us to get the light from our sun. The center of the Milky Way is 25,000 light years from our solar system. And the diameter, the size of our Milky Way, is like anywhere between 100,000 or 150,000 light years across. Like crazy numbers. So... You know, I'm reading this book about Copernicus, and he's like, oh, yeah, I think the earth is, or people are saying, I think the earth is the center of the universe. It's like, no, it's actually the sun. And compared to that, it's like, what? And so to give you even more of a, a depth into this or a perspective into this, in the Milky Way alone, it's estimated that there are 100 billion solar systems just in the Milky Way. Crazy, like, stupefying numbers. Like, we can't even get our head around it. So I don't know if you've been following the James Webb Earl Space Telescope. Yes, it's so cool. I love it. It's uh, JWST. So they just sent out the first images. Fortunately, the whole telescope worked. You you may have heard of the Hubble Telescope. Hubble Telescope went up like 20 years ago, whatever. Crazy good images. The James Webb compared to The Hubble is like analog internet versus dial up versus high speed internet in terms of what it can bring forth. So, take a look at this image. Okay, this was from July uh, of this year. That image, take a grain of sand, hold it at arm's length. That's the part of the sky that would be covered by a grain of sand held at arm's length. That's stupefying large. All those things you see, galaxies. supernovas, Immense dimensions. I want to get even more specific and granular. Go to the next one. So if you take and zoom in even there, what is that? That's like 50 galaxies just right there. So if you get that grain of sand in your hand, you take a piece of hair, put it in ink, dab a piece of ink from your hair onto that, hold it at arm's length, that's like, what, three to four million light years across just right there. This is like Monopoly money at this point. It's like whatever, you know, it's like crazily stupefying so beyond our experience and imagination. We don't even know what to do with that. It's insane how large it is. You may be like, well, where are we going with this? (laughs) What are we talking about? Um, In the passage that we read today, it talks about, it says in, in 1724, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is God being creative. You look at Genesis, he speaks, he creates, It's kind of like God having fun. He's speaking and he's creating stuff that we don't even have a category for, we would not have even known existed until, what, this summer? It's like God's having fun just because he's so creative. Now, there's a point to all this. I want to go back to what I said earlier, Paul getting beaten, jailed, all this stuff is it worth it? Is what Paul did, is what any missionary did, is what you're doing today sitting in church, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And it doesn't matter if you're in fourth grade and you're Teacher is clearly against what you believe as a Christian, whether it's in biology or science or whatever it might be. doesn't matter if it's your roommate, you know, you're out working, you're a single person, totally making fun of you. You believe that stuff? You, you're Christian? Are you crazy? Or doesn't matter if you're still, you've been serving on the mission field for 50 years. We have to ask, is it worth it? and is it real? Is it worth it, and is it real? And I remember in 1994, I had spent three years in Russia serving the Lord, and I felt the Lord calling me to Kyrgyzstan uh, as part of one of the 15 republics of the Soviet Union. And Russia, Moscow specifically, it was kind of like the jewel of the Soviet, it was the jewel of the Soviet Union. Uh, You know, and as much hardship and and things there were in the early 90s when the Soviet Union broke out, it's still Moscow, an incredible place. And so, I felt after serving there a few years, God was uh, leading me to a place that was far less reached and fewer people were going. And so, I ended up going to Kyrgyzstan. And Loaded up all my stuff with some other people that were moving down there. Flew into Kazakhstan, which is already, you know, you already got to fly to Moscow, and then you got to fly to Kazakhstan, and you got to take a bus to Kyrgyzstan. It's, like, really far out of the way compared to, you know, growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, which I did. Um, and I remember driving in from Kazakhstan, the capital of Kazakhstan, Almaty, into the capital of Kyrgyzstan. I'm like, what in the world am I getting myself into? It was really, really different. It was a, it was a Muslim country. It was far less developed than what I had experienced in, in Russia. And I was like, what, am I, what did I get myself into? And it was very oppressive, In a, honestly, in a demonic sense. Um, I don't think I'd ever spent more time and felt more spiritual oppression in a place than I ever did in Kyrgyzstan. Um, And frankly, I was really scared. I'd be walking through, you know, it was kind of the fall of the Soviet Union, so it almost felt a little dystopian in the sense, like lights didn't work. You'd be walking through the city, and it's pitch black, and there'd be a group of guys huddled under this tree. You couldn't really see, but you just saw a bunch of cigarettes, and you heard these voices like, man, I'm totally going to get jumped here. Um, and you know, like I said, I had people trying to kick in my doors while I'm inside. I was very unnerved, very scared. Um, and man, Satan was doing a work on me. It was, it was intimidating. And plus I'm thinking, I remember going through my head as I'm in Kyrgyzstan, like, this is stupid. (laughs) Like, okay, I'm a missionary. The Great Commission, go and make disciples. And I'm thinking, make disciples? I'm not even, who's even going to trust the Lord in this place? Plus, I'm terrified. This, seriously, I kid you not, I remember going through my mind, this is stupid. And God said, stick with the plan. I know what I'm doing. The Great Commission works. And so I felt like for probably the first eight months or so, so this would have been the fall of 94, to the spring of 95, intimidated, scared, unnerved, oppressed, hard, hard time. And I felt like God was telling me two really three things, but two things. He said, You are unconditionally loved and you are eternally forgiven. I didn't need to be reminded of the Great Commission like, go and tell these people about Jesus, go and tell them my good news, here's some more training. That's not what I needed at, the point, at that point as a Christian, as a missionary. I needed to be reminded that I'm secure in him. I'm eternally loved and I'm forgiven. And I remember also thinking, okay, the Great Commission, at the end of the Great Commission, we forget about this sometimes. It says, and I am with you till the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus is always with us but why did he say it in the Great Commission, as people were being sent out? And I think it's because there's a rem- we needed a we need a reminder if we're facing opposition, whether it's in Temecula in your school and you want to share the gospel with someone, or you're in who knows where and people are getting beheaded. We need to know Jesus is with us. And I remember very specifically, you know, because I'm scared, thinking I'm going to get hurt or beat up or whatever, and. I remember God giving me this real strong sense that, David, I'm not going to promise you you're not going to get hurt, but I am promising to be with you. And I think once I got those three things nailed into my head, I'm eternally secure, I'm forever forgiven, and Jesus is with me. I was I was okay. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so the team and I that I was the team that I was on great group of Christians, and and a few of the things that we did early on is we poured ourselves into prayer. We prayed every day. We sometimes have, you know, extended prayer times, uh, like on Thursday mornings, and then sometimes we'd even do, like, all nights of prayer, which I don't know if that's always good because you end up falling asleep for a lot of it, Um, but we were praying a a lot, but we were also just being very bold with our evangelism and discipleship, and it was incredible what God did. When I first was reading about Kyrgyzstan, I think they had estimated the World Center for World Mission and maybe estimated. I don't know if this is completely true, but this was, I think, the statistic they had had that there were 12 believers in Kyrgyzstan in 1992, I think it was. Well, that's 1995 that I'm talking about. I spent uh, the next four years there till 99 doing evangelism and discipleship and praying and so forth, and and building up new believers. And I remember I was summer of 1999. All the Americans on our team had left, but we had so many young believers that had been trained up. We were sending them out on missions trips around to country villages or villages around Kyrgyzstan. And I think that we were there about 10 days or two weeks or something. And just the little team that I was leading, we saw like 20 people come to know the Lord. And I was talking to some of the, the girls, and we had girls and guys on our team, but I was talking to a couple of the girls on my team. One was named Mary. And I was like, oh, so tell me your story. You know, what, what, what was your story? So they, she and her, one of her friends, Gulnada, on our team, had gone out and they had shared their faith. They were training this, these uh, like new believers in this church. It's like, well, tell me your story. Like, how, you know, where you know when did you come a believer and so forth and she was a new believer herself so mary's a new believer she had gone out and shared her faith and was training this church well mary had become a believer because Gulnara who was also on our team had shared with her and it's like oh that's so awesome Gulnara how did you become to know, how did you come to know the lord she's like well last year 1998 there was a girl named Ira, who shared her faith with me, and I became a believer, and I knew Ira. Because in 1997, Jenny, my wife, had been in a village in a different part of Kyrgyzstan and shared with Ira the gospel, and Ira had come to know the Lord. So in the course of two years, there's like five generations of believers, and I'm thinking just a few years earlier, I'm like this is stupid. What God did was absolutely incredible. And so, you know, going back to my own doubts, going back to Paul's, perhaps his doubts, his struggles, going back to other missionaries who I'm sure have had doubts and struggles and been despondent, and needed a voice from the Lord. You know, it makes me think of the early mission efforts in Korea, which started 1880s or so. And so, to give you a bit of a backdrop, you, you see these five generations of believers, you know, it goes back to Jenny. Well, Jenny's own family, and sorry, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to, I don't want to put Jenny on the spot, but I'm trying to paint a picture for God, what He's doing, what He's done. So, Jenny and I, we met when she came over um, to Kazakhstan in 1999. It's a very cute story if you ever want to hear it. Jenny tells it a lot better than I did, and we fell in love and so forth. I'm not going to obviously spend a lot of time on that. So, we get married. We have our kids. Verity goes on a missions trip a couple years ago. Jenny grew up in a Christian household. Both her parents loved the Lord, pastors, served in the church the entire career. Her mom still does. She's got her own YouTube channel. We're in like 40 books. Her mom, excuse me, her dad, Holly, Jenny's granddad, was one of the first presidents or the first president of one of the first seminaries in Korea. And then his dad was one of the first pastors in Korea, and then he led his dad to the Lord. So, I'm not trying to just shed light on her. It's just a story that I know because it's personal. Go back to the early Christian missionaries in Korea in the 1880s, 1890s, and they're struggling. People are getting stoned. It's like, this isn't worth it. And if you could tell that missionary in Korea for the next 130 years, there's going to be a bloodline that's going to serve the Lord and share his gospel all over the globe. He'd be like, what? What? It's like us looking at those images from the James Webb Space Telescope. We can't even fathom it. What? Is it worth it? is it real never underestimate never underestimate what god can do in 1988 i was uh first mission trip i took overseas and i went to a country it was still a country at the time i mean it's broken up since then but it was yugoslavia and we were in a number of different cities and this was in the early days if you look at the history of missions Um, Short-term missions trips are a really new thing. I I know Paul was kind of the first guy who did it, but then it kind of just went away for a long time. But in terms of mobilizing students and doing all that, it's a pretty new thing. So in the 80s is kind of where it started to take off a little bit more. So I was in, I was after, this was my sophomore, junior year in college, I was in um, Yugoslavia, and there was... (laughs) Uh, just for the summer, and there was a, a few people that were already there. They had been there like eight months. And one guy was named Jim Taylor. Well, Jim, passionate about the Lord. Passion- it's funny, I was just thinking about this earlier. He was actually leading us through the book of Acts. <laughs> it's funny how that came about. but um, He grew up non-Christian, I think a pretty rough, hard, broken up family type of thing. And so one day he's over at a friend's house, a buddy's house. I think he was like 12 years old. And the mom was a Sunday school teacher and just, hey, I'm sharing the gospel with this kid, Jim. And um, it, it transformed Jim. Jim went home that night, prayed to receive Christ. And I don't think he ever saw or talked to the woman again. She never knew that Jim received the Lord and then ended up being a missionary. The last I heard, he was like a pastor in Texas. Transformed his life simply by sharing the gospel. Never heard what happened. And his quote, reflecting on his own life story, was, you never know the ramifications of the gospel. You never know what's going to happen when you introduce wolves into Yellowstone. You never know what's going to happen when you set out to strengthen the churches. All this other stuff cascades down, and we don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. You know, I showed you all those images about the James Webb Space Telescope and so forth. That is God being creative. That is God creating something when he speaks. Imagine what God does when he's intentional and he sends. When he sends his son to do something because he's so crazy in love with us that he can't stand to be separated from us. When he's not just creative, he's intentional and he's sending his son to accomplish something that is far beyond what we could have ever imagined or dreamed. That's God's intentionality. And so what drove Paul was the resurrection. Everything that you look at that Paul did, and you can bring up that slide, every single thing that Paul did was based on the resurrection. Every single thing. I didn't highlight that on the first graphic that I did. The verse is all there. Look at the passage yourself. Every single thing that he did was because of the the resurrection. And... I think I want us to understand that where we are, no matter where we fall on this spectrum in our walk with the Lord, you may be a new believer here. You may just be a seeker. You don't even know really what church is about. You may be someone that's been serving. You listen on TV. Maybe you're sitting in, in, in in the stands or the seats. You've been a missionary for 50, 60 years. Everything we do, everything we need to know wherever we fall in that spectrum, lines up and rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. That's the foundation that we look at. That's the foundation that holds us up. And if the resurrection's not true, everything we believe is pointless. Why would you come listen to a silly man tell silly stories Every Sunday morning, if it's not true, go play golf, go fish. Why would you? That's ludicrous that you would be at church, that I would be at church, that we'd believe any of this if the resurrection is not true. And as I was preparing the sermon and putting stuff together, I had this sense. And, you know, sometimes when I prepare, it's like, you know, the Church does want me to speak on this passage or whatever. But for some reason, I just had this kind of sense and, and burden as I was preparing my message and, and looking at what to share and thinking about what to share. That as you sit here today, as you listen online, a lot of people don't need to know like, hey, I need more impetus to go out and to share my faith. I had a real strong sense that there's pain, there's loneliness, there's sadness, there's hurting, there's grief, there's doubt. I've been there. I've been there as a both as a missionary and just as a plain old Christian. Like, is this real? Is this worth it? And I know I'm not alone. All of us are bombarded constantly for reasons not to believe. Temptations we face, struggles we face. Paul set out to strengthen the churches, to visit the brethren, the men and the women. You, you think, oh, second missionary journey, let's, yeah, let's learn how to share our faith and where we should go. Paul didn't even do that on a second missionary journey. His goal was to help the hurting, to strengthen the church. And just as I was sitting month after month in my apartment in Kyrgyzstan, I needed to know three things. I needed to know that I'm unconditionally loved, I'm eternally forgiven, and Jesus is with me. I had been a Christian 20 years or something at that point. I still needed to know that. We don't outgrow that as Christians. It's like, oh yeah, I was five years old, became a Christian, boom, done, no. I mean, maybe, that's that's not been my experience. And I would venture to say that's probably hardly anyone's experience. You're eternally loved, you're forever forgiven, and Jesus is with you. And all of that is foundationally grounded in the resurrection of Christ. If the resurrection did not happen, don't come to church. Don't give your money to church. That would be ludicrous. But if it is real, since it's real, it changes everything. You may be wondering, well, what kind of church is Sunridge? We're a Jesus church. We're we're a church that believes that God is both creative and intentional. And that he's he's so crazy in love with us that he would do anything to remove any barrier that separated us. That he would forgive our sins. That he would send his son to die for us. And he had the power to raise him from the dead. That's what kind of church we are. I'm going to have the band come up. and I'm going to read a passage that I hope will sum up everything that we've just talked about and discussed. And this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God That he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. then those who have have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. We're fools. We're stupid. I added that. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, you don't have to take my word for this. I, 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 what I did is I, uh, I there's a QR code on your note sheet. There's a whole thing I put together for research about why the resurrection is true. I, if you want me to spend a couple more hours here, I'll do it. But I don't think you want that. Look at it. It's all these proofs and disputes for you know, against, so forth, why the resurrection is true. Please take a look at it. So given that message, don't let people muddle that truth for you. We believe in a God who has power over life and death and gives salvation freely to those who call on his name.
0: Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening.